This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Merry Christmas. Yeah, it's great to be together. Uh, We'll be together tomorrow night as well. And uh, so great to be together celebrating Christmas with you. If you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 1. My name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to talk to you about Christmas today. And uh, it's wonderful to have you here, uh, especially if you're a guest, uh, just to be visiting uh, with us and worshiping with us at this special time of the year. So we're really glad to have you. It's always good to meet people's family at this time of the year, and and, uh, I I just love meeting family. So if you brought some family here, I hope to meet them. I always feel a little bit like the teacher at Open House. So yeah, your kid's doing really great here at the church and that kind of deal But uh, as I meet the grandparents. But I'd, I'd be glad to really hope to meet a lot of you afterwards as drink some hot chocolate and cider with you and that sort of thing. Why don't we pray and then we will uh, jump in to the message. Our God, we thank you that you have come and what that means to us that you have come and that you are with us. Uh, that prospect, that reality changes everything. And so we thank you for the good news that all has changed because you're here. And we pray today that we would encounter you afresh through your scripture. And we pray that those who've yet to meet you, that they would meet you today and uh, for the first time experience the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, granting new life. So would you please come and give that greatest gift of all today, Lord, open eyes and open hearts to you. So please be among us and help us, teach us, encourage us, strengthen us, enable us to celebrate who you are and what you've done today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's that time of the year, at the end of the year, where people put out their best of lists and I always find these interesting. I've already seen best books of the year. I've seen best albums of the year. Uh, I've seen best news stories of the year. I've also seen best sports stories of the year. Uh, so there's always, at the end of the year, people putting out the best of. And uh, so I came across one, which was Unusual Baby Names for 2012. Now, this is an actual survey that was done that wasn't even, in any sense, random. I think it was... Uh, a uh, half million babies were, well, babies weren't surveyed, but their names, <laughs> they asked a half million babies, what do you want? And they just cried. But they says half a million babies. And uh, this is a real risk because if I mention your name, I, that could be awkward, but I'm not mocking these names. So if I mention your name, uh, I am not mocking you. I'm just acknowledging that you have an unusual name by statistical evidence, not by my personal opinion. And so they recognized the half million uh, babies in 2012, and they made a list. This is at uh, Baby Center is the organization that did this. And they made a list of the unusual girl names and the unusual boy names. So I'm going to share these with you. If you are pregnant, I'm doing you a tremendous service because you can pick names that are unique and unusual out of this list. And if I mention your name, I apologize ahead of time. Uh, I love you, but you're on the list. <laughs> And it's not your fault. Your parents named you that. I don't think anyone's on this list. But here we go. Here were some unusual girl names. And these had to happen in multiples. So this wasn't like one person out of half a million. This was by more than one. Uh, unusual girl names. Admire. Oh, I love that name. Meet my daughter. You know, admi- this is my daughter. Admire. Oh, you're so cute. I mean, it's like an invitation. Admire my daughter. Okay. Uh, Excel. Like the spreadsheet. That was the name. Excel. Jazzy. Meet my daughter. This is my daughter, Jazzy. Uh, now this was a guy who wanted a boy, but didn't get one Joshitha. And so 
Josh Etha. So my name's Josh. We wanted a boy. I'm sorry, we wanted a boy. We got a girl. She's Josh Etha. Uh, Juju, J-U-J-U. Now this is classy. Mona Lisa, one word. Mona Lisa. I like that. Yeah, isn't that nice? Sanity. Sanity. Yep. The parents lacked that, who gave that name, I think. Shug, S-H-O-O-G, I like that one. Yoga, yoga, there's a name. The boys' names were better, I thought, more creative. Burger, uh, I've got two boys who live that name, and uh, I should have, I could have named them Burger and Double Burger. Uh, Casanova, yeah, that's, you're taking your chances on that one. How does that work out? Hey, Dad, I want you to meet this new guy I've met. His name's Casanova. <laughs> no. Um, now, this is one where they just took the names different. These are on the list together. Uh, which I thought it was very creative. David, not David, but David and Donathan. So like J- David and Jonathan, David and Donathan, that's the answer. Now, this is my favorite in the whole list. Espen. It's spelled E-S-P-N. Espen. E-S-P-N. Oh, man, that is a name right there. Okay, Google, more than one boy named Google this year. Uh, Hippo, uh, this is a good, Jedi. Oh, you could call him Jed for short. That's a good idea. Call him Jed. His name's Jedi. Popeye, uh, and then this is a great name if you're waiting, Thunder. I mean, if your boy is named Thunder, I mean, he has taken people out on his name alone. You know, this is... This is my boy, Thunder. He doesn't get good grades, but um, he's tough. Tron, uh, Turbo, and one I would not recommend, Vice. Uh, that would not my name. It's our Christian son, Vice. They also did in the survey, they said, what was the motivation? They interviewed people as to wh- how they named their kids, what they name them, and uh, a high, uh, a high-ranking trait was uniqueness of name, selecting something that was unique. So some of the people... Espen and Google, they accomplished naming their kids something that's unique. It used to be that people named their kids oftentimes something that was maybe connected to the family, not just trying to be cool and have a unique name, or something that had a deep meaning to it. When we were naming our kids, everybody was like, what what does that mean? That was like, it meant something, what the name means. I'm not sure that's such a big deal now. When we, when we do baby dedications, I used to always ask, what is the, tell us the kid's name and what does it mean? And uh, one year I had a dad literally say, this is our son. I'm not going to say what his name is in English. This is the name and it means pagan. At which point, oh, can we pray for baby pagan? And, uh, and can we pray for his dad who just announced to the church he named his kid a pagan? But used to be it was important what the name meant. In biblical times, it was important what the name meant. And I'm not sure if you realize this or not, but the naming of Jesus is an important part of the Christmas story. It's part of the Christmas story we don't talk about a lot. It doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's a very important part of the story, and it gets a number of verses, and they're really key verses in the whole narrative of the Christmas story is the naming of Jesus, because he was given a name, not by Mary and Joseph, but by God the Father. He was given a name, delivered through an angel, what the name was to be, and his name was very significant because of its meaning. As a matter of fact, his name is the whole purpose of Christmas. So the rather trite saying, Jesus is the reason for the season, actually the name of Jesus, certainly the person, but the name of Jesus is the reason for the season. 
what his name means and how it's given to him is all about the Christmas season. So I'm going to look at a verse or two about his name, but I want to give the background of it by reading a few verses before. So this is Matthew 1, verses 18 through 24. Matthew 1, 18 through 24. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. So in the passage, we see the angel telling him what the name would be, and then we see Joseph obeying and actually calling his name Jesus. But first of all, a little bit of background before the naming of Jesus. Joseph and Mary are betrothed to be married. They are betrothed. Now, we don't have really betrothal um, in our culture, but a betrothal is more than an engagement and less than a marriage. It's more than an engagement because it is a legally binding contract, uh, which is why he said he would divorce her quietly. It would require a divorce to separate a betrothal. I mean, you can call out, you can call off an engagement just verbally, but to call off a betrothal required a certificate of divorce. However, during the betrothal period, the couple had not come together. There was no sexual union uh, until marriage, so they weren't actually married, and that's what the challenge in the event was, because it says here that uh, that they that uh, it was before they had come together, verse 18, that Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So, Joseph finds this news out that she is pregnant, and yet they've not married, and they've not been together. And so when he hears this news, it is scandalous news, to be sure, concerning news, because what could this mean except that she's been unfaithful and broken her betrothal um, and uh, to Joseph? Now, what it says is that he is a just man, he is a good man, he is a righteous and a godly man, and he says in verse 19, it says that he is he was unwilling to put her to shame and resolve to divorce her quietly. So he didn't want to make a big deal about it. Uh, he just wanted to sort of quietly in the relationship, get the divorce taken care of and go about his way. So he's considering this option, which in his mind is the best of the options. He's considering this option. And while he's considering it, an angel shows up. 
God sends a being. Angels are not humans like us. They are some kind of a created spiritual being that appear to people at various times in the Scripture, rarely, but sometimes they do on special occasions. And an angel actually appears to him, and the angel announces that this pregnancy is unlike any other. Uh, it says, verse 19, as her, and her husband Joseph, being a, a just man, was unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, as he considered divorcing her, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, that's going to be important, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is, is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So this is a miracle. This has never happened but before. And what he's saying is uh, her pregnancy is not due to her being unfaithful to you. It's not due to immorality. Her pregnancy is rather, in fact, due to the fact that she is having a unique pregnancy. She is conceived by the power, miraculously, by the power of the Holy Spirit. God made her pregnant. She conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and now she is carrying a unique person. The Son of God, he's fully God and fully man. And verse 21, he says, you shall call his name, she's going to bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So they tell what the name is going to be, it's to be Jesus. Jesus um, was a very common name at that time. It was not a unique name. It would not have made the most unique names of the year, you know, 4 BC or 0 AD or whenever he was born. There's debate about when he was born, but it would not have been included there um, because it was very common. The name is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. So it's the same name as Joshua, just from different languages, we could say. And uh, it literally means he saves. Or the Lord saves. So he says to him, you sh she's going to carry a boy. You shall name him. He saves because he will save his people from their sins. <coughs> you shall name him this name because the point of the verse is, <coughs> excuse me, this is why he's coming. This is his name and this is his mission and his mission and his name are one. His name will describe why he's here. So every time his mom calls him in from the yard to come in at dinner time and eat, stop playing, come in and eat, she will be saying, the Lord saves, come in. He saves, come in. And the name of the names were so much more meaningful then. It wasn't, it rhymes with our last name, or this was grandpa's name, or it was the meaning of a name was so important. So he was regularly on the lips of everyone who called Jesus the boy and the man by name. There was an announcement of his mission. There was an announcement of his purpose. You see, his name describes his mission. So, you shall, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people. What does this word save mean? What does that mean? That's kind of a religious word. Religious people say things like, I was saved five years ago. What does that, what does that mean? I mean, we, that word's tossed around frequently in, you know, among church folk, but it's rarely defined. He was saved. So Jesus will come and he will save. Well, it's the word means it has to do with rescue. It means to rescue or to save or to deliver, especially where there is uh, impending or apparent danger. So we use this word the same way in English today. 
uh, in non-religious ways, but they mean the same as this does in the religious and the sacred text here of Scripture. So here's how we would use that. I would say, um, the firefighter ran into the burning building and grabbed the child out of his bedroom and carried him through the to outside to safety. That firefighter saved that little boy. That's the meaning. The firefighter rescued the boy from impending danger. He delivered him from imminent death. He saved him. That's what the word means. It's a deliverer. It's a savior. And the people of Israel at the time Jesus came were expecting a savior. They were expecting a deliverer. They were expecting a rescuer. The, the problem was is that many of their expectations were they were expecting a political savior. They were expecting a king who would overthrow and overrule uh, the government that they were uh, under. You see, they, the people of Israel did not have ultimate freedom. They were governed by Roman rule. And so they had these Roman rulers that, uh, in the, in the Roman Empire there that, that ruled over them, limited their freedom, took their money for taxes to, to fund the government and their purposes. And so they were longing for the day they would be free as they were in the old days to worship God as their own nation under their own king. That was their hope. So they were longing for the day that God would send a rescuer, a political ruler who could be raised up and could overthrow, kind of like Moses did, could overthrow the Roman government. That was their longing and their hope. And this would be a king who was under David's in the line of David. This would be the king who, like David, the great king, would come and rule and reign over God's people in God's land rather than being under the authority of a pagan government. That was their dream. That was their hope. That was their longing. And that was the expectation when they were thinking Messiah, when they were thinking Savior, when they were thinking Deliverer, many were thinking this way. And so what the angel says is that this Jesus, who will come as a rescuer, as a saver, as a deliverer, he will come and he will save his people from their sins. So he is going to be a savior. He's going to be in the line of David because it says that Joseph was from the house of David. So he's going to be in the kingly line, in the Davidic line. But he's not coming, at least at his first coming, he's not coming to establish a political reign. He's not coming as a new earthly king that will overthrow uh, Caesar. He's coming as one who will deliver and save people from their sins. You see, what they believed was their greatest need was political freedom, but God says their greatest need was a total different kind of freedom. It was freedom from their sins. Their greatest problem for his people, for the people of Israel, the greatest problem was not their political scenario. The greatest problem was their personal standing before God and their national standing before God. And they needed rescue from their sins. And like them, we too are often not very good at diagnosing our greatest need. We're not. We feel certain things. We're aware of certain things. I need this. I need that. But oftentimes we don't diagnose what our greatest need was. This would probably come as, well, that's not what we were expecting. We need something else. Boy, if we want to glorify God, this is what we need, political freedom. If we want to be happy, this is what we need, political freedom. 
If this, if we want to see God's name go forth, this is what we need, political freedom. But that's not what they needed. And today you may be here with us worshiping and, and you may feel like the greatest need for rescue is, is, it could be any number of things. You may feel the greatest need I feel today for rescue, you might say, is I want to be rescued out of debt. My finances are upside down, and I just want to be rescued out of this mess of bills and phone calls and bill collectors. And I just want to be free from the financial mess somehow I got in. You may be here today, and you say, what I need to be rescued from is a failing marriage. What I need to be rescued from is depression today, the darkness, the, the, the hole that I feel in my heart, my soul, my mind every day, the weight of just this dark depression that I lived in. If I could be free from that, the loneliness that plagues me and haunts me, if I could be free from that, the physical pain that I endure. There are people in the room who every day endure some type of physical pain. It's a way of life for you. And maybe others know it, maybe they don't. But you say, this Christmas, if I could have one thing, it would be deliverance from this disease or this illness or this injury, this physical pain I'm under. Maybe a relationship where there's conflict or tearing. You say, if I could be delivered from the constant pressure of this conflict I'm under. Listen, those are all very real needs. Some of those needs being maybe why you're here today, maybe what you're thinking about, maybe what you're asking God this year for. So those are very real needs, and I don't minimize them. I don't say they're unimportant. They're very, very important, super important. But I assure you this, they're not your greatest need. There's a need below this that is an eternal need. All of those are temporal needs, meaning that when you die, they're done. If you die in debt, it's not going to really affect you. If you die in pain, you know, it's not going to really... You're done. You're done. So... This is an eternal need. He comes to save us from our sins, to rescue us from our sins. What does that mean? Well, it means this, that the Bible teaches that we are all sinful. I'm sinful, you're sinful, all of us are. And our sins separate us from God because God is holy. God is holy and we are sinful, and that puts us in a very needy position. And sometimes we don't even walk around feeling that. You're like, well, man, I'm not doing anything bad. I'm not stealing from anybody. I'm not uh, cheating on my wife. I'm not uh, you know, robbing any banks. Uh, I, I'm not murdering anybody. I, I'm a good citizen. I'm not doing that bad. But the measure of how we're doing is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Jesus said this, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That was his standard. Holiness means absolute righteousness, perfect righteousness. And none of us live up to that. Not one person in this room or in all of history besides Jesus has ever lived up to that. And because we fail to live a perfect life before God, we we fail to do what he tells us to do in his scripture. and, uh, uh, And we do things that he tells us not to do. And so we have this record before a holy God of imperfection, of sin, of rebellion, of doing our own thing, of being proud or selfish in our lives. And so the reason that is a problem is because God, the holy God of the universe, judges sin. And so each of us is awaiting a day where we will stand before God and give an account for our lives. And every one of us will be found guilty. There'll be nobody found perfectly righteous. It's not, did your good way, do you have more good works than bad works? 
That, that's not it. Did you go to church more than you went to bad places? Were you sober more than you were drunk? Were you faithful more than you were sleeping around? Were you giving more than you were stealing? It's not just some comparison. Were you nice more than you were mean? Uh, but it's, were you perfect? And none of us measure up. And so we all will stand before God and deserve condemnation, deserve hell for eternity. We'll all deserve to pay for our sins. Now, I know this sounds like bad news, and it is. But we must know the bad news before we can appreciate the good news of this. In the Christmas story, the sky is being lit up by angels who are saying glory to God in the highest because Jesus comes to rescue us from all that. The impending fire, we could say, (laughs) like the rescuer, the firefighter who comes in to rescue us. He comes to save us from our sins. He comes to save us, first of all, from the penalty of our sins so that we don't have to pay for our sins. And he ultimately comes to save us from even the presence of sin. For one day, those who believe in Jesus will die and will be with him in heaven, and there'll be no sin even present. So he dies to, to free us from the penalty and the presence of our sins. And here's the way he does that is by dying in our place. So Jesus, who is born, Jesus, the Lord saves, Jesus, God is salvation, grows up. He lives a perfect life. He grows up. And at the end of his life, about 33 years old or so, he dies on a cross. And the Bible says that he's not just dying a martyr's death, or he's not just dying as an example, but he's dying in our place. He's dying as a substitute so that he dies for our sins, so that if we believe in him, if we trust in him, if we turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus and we believe that he is the only way to bring forgiveness my sins, he's the only way to wash away my sins, he's the only way to make me right with God. If we believe that and trust him alone as our rescuer, as our savior, as our deliverer, as the one who forgives us, then we are forgiven of our sins by believing in him, by trusting in him, by turning from our sins and turning to him. It is glorious good news. Jesus comes to turn back the effects of sin in this world and by rescuing us from our sins and by delivering us out of that burning house, as it were, with the firefighter to a place, much more than a place of safety, a place of glory in his presence forever in heaven. And he does this because of his love. That's where the firefighter illustration breaks down. Uh, A firefighter, unless he's delivering his own family, unless he's going in and putting out a fire in his own house, a firefighter rescues people out of the general goodwill of his heart because he generally cares about humanity. He does it because it's his responsibility. He does it because it's his duty. He does it because he signed up for the job to risk his life to rescue people that he does not know because he generally cares for uh, the good of men and women, boys and girls. Jesus rescues us because he loves us personally. So the good news of Christmas is that God loves us individually and personally with care and takes our personal sins upon himself. God the Father pours out his judgment on God the Son. God the Son dies in our place, and by believing in him, we receive forgiveness of sins because of his love for us. He has done this to make us right with himself, to welcome him, welcome us into his presence. That's why he came. That's why he was born. That's why he lived and died. That's why he rose, rose because he loves us. 
That's the glorious good news, that love has come to us in Jesus Christ. So his name is his mission. Name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And he says more than that. It also says that he'll have a people, for he will save his people from their sins. So his, he loves us individually. He cares for us individually. He dies for us individually. He welcomes us individually. But he joins us to his people. It's not just individual, but he does this for his people. Both in the New Testament, we find out, both Jew and Gentile. Jesus dies for Jews and Gentiles. He gives his life for us. See, we tend to be a culture that just thinks about personal faith, which I just emphasized. There must be personal faith. But we tend to emphasize that and miss sort of the bigger picture. The passage says he dies for a people. He dies to make a people for himself. He dies so that we could be a part of this and we could be a part of being with Christians all over the world and of all times who have believed in him. And he dies to give his life. He raises to defeat our sin uh, so that we could be a part of his people, that we could celebrate him, know him, and grow in him together. We live in a culture that is very big on personal spirituality. That's a good thing in our culture, personal spirituality, but sort of institutional religion, the church, we're not as big on. I have my private faith. I sort of have my private deal with God. I sort of have a personal... Yeah, I'm a very spiritual person. I just don't... I'm not a part of any sort of structured church institution or religion. I have more of a personal relationship with the Lord. Well, he didn't die for just my spiritual well-being, for just me and Jesus, but to make me a part of his people. He dies for a people, and this is so important. You must be come to faith as a person individually. So I want to make both points here. You come to faith as a person individually, not because you're a part of a church or your parents are part of a church. You must personally come to faith. But once you personally come to faith, you are part of his people. And the only way that you will grow, the only way you will mature, the only way you'll know the love of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God, the holiness of God, the only way you'll know these things and grow is by being a part of his people. And he calls us to be a part of his people. I encourage you, if you're just visiting here, maybe you're from out of town, that you find a people, that you find the Savior, and you find a people that you can live your life with in a church. If you're in this area, we'd invite you and love to have you on board being on the mission with us and following Christ in our journey together. We'd love to have you as a part. It's the only way any of us grow. We're not meant to be isolated because he dies for a people. And we really see this at Christmas. It's glorious to get together with the people of God. I mean, I read the Christmas story one-on-one. I think about Christmas and Jesus coming one-on-one, but it's great to be with the people of God, singing the great hymns of the faith, singing joy to the world in a room full of people doing that. Tomorrow night we'll gather with candlelight and sing about the holy night that Christ came and do that with the people of God, his people gathered before him. It's, it's a beautiful experience, and we see that at Christmas in such a wonderful way. So he, his name indicates that he has a people. It indicates his mission. And the last thing, his name indicates that God is with his people. So she will have a son, the angel says. You shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel is like a title. So his name wasn't first name Jesus, middle name Emmanuel, 
His last name wasn't Christ. That's a title. So it wasn't Joseph Christ, Mary Christ, had baby Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. It means Messiah, or it means king. Emmanuel's a title as well. It comes from the Old Testament, from Isaiah. A virgin will have a child, and they'll call his name Emmanuel. That means he'll be God. It means literally God with us. Jesus saves his people. That's his given name. That's his given name. This is Martin here, my friend. His name is Martin. So that's his first name. Jesus is his first name. That's what they would have called him. The Lord saves his first name. Emmanuel was his title. Like engineer. Martin's an engineer. I don't know. Church member or community group leader or whatever. His title. Husband. Father. So Emmanuel was his title. And it meant God is with us. One of his titles. God with us. That is the good news of Christmas as well, that God has come with us. He didn't save us from afar. He didn't just send a memo, send a message. Uh, The angel just didn't say, hey, here's what you can do. Here's how you can sign up to be a Christian or something like that. He came to actually be with us by his presence, God with us. And this gospel, the gospel of Matthew, it begins with this promise that God is with us, and it ends with it as well. Matthew 28, go into all the world. He says, preach the gospel ultimately, make disciples, and I am with you always to the end of the age. So the good news of Christmas is that God comes in Jesus Christ, who's fully God and fully man. He dies and rises for our sins, and those who believe in him receive new life and forgiveness of sin. But that's not all, as if that's just like some kind of transaction that occurred. Like it's just a signed document. Okay, got that taken care of. Like you get a birth certificate or a marriage license. Okay, that's a piece of paper. It's okay, you're in. It's not just an event that happens, but his spirit is with us in an ongoing way. It's an event that happens, but his spirit now lives in us. So if you become a believer, the Holy Spirit begins to live inside of you. And God is with you through his scripture, by his Holy Spirit, through his people, God is with us. And that's what fundamentally changes when Jesus comes. God comes. He's not just sending a prophet to say he'll come. He's not just sending a priest to go through the, some, um, some requirements so that we can be clean before God. He is sending himself. God is, Jesus is God in the flesh come and he is with us. And when he leaves, after his death and resurrection, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Then he pours out his spirit so that we are with us. There's no greater comfort than that to know that God is with us. If you have never believed in Jesus, you may know about God. You may get some warm feelings at Christmas. You may sense his presence in a church service or when you pray or when certain things happen. You may kind of know something about him, but God is not with you in the same way that he is someone who has believed in him. For he will take up residence in your heart and in your life and begin to change you from the inside. God with us means that you don't have to change your act to get right with God. You have to believe that your act is not a good one, just like mine. And you're trusting Jesus as your Savior. And then you have God with you and in you to begin to change your desires and to make you a new person. He makes you a new person. You don't make yourself a new person to be right with God. God makes you a new person. And changes you. God with us. God who comforts us. That's one of the names of the Holy Spirit. Comforter. See, when we know Christ, we have the comfort of the Spirit with us. Helping us. Encouraging us. Sustaining us. So if you've never met him, I I urge you today that you this Christmas would say, you know what? 
I see why he came. His name is Jesus, not just because that was a good name, that went with his last name, that was a unique name, that was a religious name, that was a popular name. His mom just liked the way it sounded. No, that's his name because that's the purpose of Christmas. He came to save us from our sins by living a perfect life and dying a perfect death. You can turn to him today and believe him. Just express in your mind or in your mind to him, even with your words, just to communicate, God, I realize I'm a sinner and I am deserving of your judgment, but I believe Jesus came to save me from that judgment and I believe in you. I trust you as my Savior today. You can do that and become a new person. You can mention that to the person who brought you or one of the pastors will be around. We'd love to help you to talk about that, help you know how you can follow the Lord after making that decision. Maybe you're here today as a Christian, and uh, the, the message to you is the same. God is saving you. God has saved you. He is saving you. God is with you. This is a great promise at Christmas. God with us by his Spirit. Some of us in the room are having a challenging time this Christmas. I mean, I'm not saying that because I know, but I just know in a group this size, somebody's struggling this Christmas. And there's people in the room that are battling loneliness this Christmas. Maybe you're separated from your family. Maybe you're separated from parts, special people in your family. Maybe you're single and longing to be married. Maybe you're single and thought you would be married by this stage in your life. And the good news, I don't say this in any kind of a trite way, but the, the hope for all of us in, battle, in seasons like that, when we can't do anything about our circumstances, is to trust that God is with me and to ask the Holy Spirit to comfort and strengthen. I, I'm just aware, because I lost my own mom a number of years ago, I'm just aware that there's folks in the room, this is the first Christmas without your mom because she died this year, or your dad, or your a sibling, or, God forbid, one of your children. And so this Christmas is a time of memories and grieves. Griefs, you're grieving over something. The good news of Christmas is that God is with us, Emmanuel. And, and that doesn't bring the person back, and, and grief is appropriate and right. That doesn't make all the emotions of sadness go away. Those are appropriate. But it is a promise that the Holy Spirit is with us at our most lonely times. Matter of fact, we can experience him in the most profound way at our darkest times. When life is going great, oftentimes we're not aware of his presence. But when we're grieving or lonely, God is with us. Maybe you're experiencing some relational challenges. Glad that you're here. There's a lot of us that aren't here because they left for the weekend. Some of you are leaving today. Some of you are leaving tomorrow. Some of you are with people on the 25th. And as soon as you get around the table, everybody's going to, something. somebody's going to say something and there's going to be a temptation and how do I answer back or some, you're going to be ignored or you're not going to be acknowledged or you're going to be acknowledged for something you don't want to be acknowledged for um, or someone's going to say something or someone's going to criticize the dish you made or whatever it is. Just I guarantee you uh, that there are temptations coming on Christmas Day. And they didn't seem to like the gift like I thought they would like the gift. And uh, <clears throat> they asked if I had a gift receipt for it. To, <laughs> that was my first clue uh, to take it back. But uh, So something's going to happen. Relational challenges. Maybe there's deep relational challenges. Maybe you're in a very broken family. God is with us. It's the message of Christmas. Again, I mentioned earlier, maybe you're challenged financially. God is with us. Maybe you're sorely tempted in some way or suffering. 
I'm going to read you a verse. We'll finish with this. But I'll read you this verse about God, Jesus being with us. Listen to these verses from Hebrew. Since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Got any of those this Christmas? We don't have a Savior who can't sympathize. What are you talking about? No, God understands. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. In every respect, he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may have mercy and find grace in our help of need. God is with us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. And we can come to him and find grace and mercy. If you're grieving, there's grace and mercy in Jesus. If you've got relational conflict, there's grace and mercy in Jesus. If you've got dashed expectations this this Christmas, there's mercy and grace in Jesus. If you're grieving or lonely or broke or despairing or in pain or experiencing grave difficulty this Christmas, if you're facing an uncertain 2013, if you're living with a medical diagnosis over your head, that is fearful, he sympathizes with our weaknesses, he is near us, and it says that we can come to him in confidence to receive mercy and grace. So that's the appeal to everyone in the room. That's the invitation. Come to Jesus, run to Jesus, because he's got overflowing mercy and grace for you. If you're not a Christian, come to Jesus and receive the forgiveness of your sins. Get your conscience cleansed. Get a new life. Receive the assurance of eternal life. If you are a Christian and you're struggling in any way, come to Christ and find fresh mercy, fresh grace. He is with us. And if things are going great, come running to Jesus, thanking him for the mercy and grace that you're experiencing. And be ready. Be ready for you don't know what's coming tomorrow, but be ready to return with every need, aware that he is sympathetic toward your weaknesses and forgiving of your sin. Come to Jesus, for he has come to save his people from our sins and to be Emmanuel, God with us, who sympathizes with our weaknesses and provides care and grace and help in our time of need. It's good news. That's why Christmas is very, very good news, because of Jesus and his work. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.